Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Reports Weekly Technology Report. I'm your host, Fago Muradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell since 1935. Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. Later in the program, John Co-Francesco, the founder of Applied AI Company, on what thoughtful artificial intelligence regulation looks like. But first, it's my pleasure to welcome back to the program, Nigel Inkster, the former Director of Intelligence and Operations at the Secret Intelligence Service, otherwise known as MI6, who is now the Senior Advisor for Cybersecurity in China at the International Institute for Strategic Studies. Nigel, thanks very much uh, for joining us. Always a pleasure having you on the program. Margo, it's a pleasure to be here. Uh, Thanks uh, very much uh, indeed. Before we get started, our daily podcast is sponsored by Bell. Leonardo DRS and HII sponsor our global coverage. General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our strategy coverage. Ultra Intelligence and Communications sponsors our command and control coverage. And GE Aerospace sponsors uh, our air and naval coverage. Uh, And check out our coverage of the Navy League's annual Sea Airspace Conference and trade show, both on our platform as well as Cabas Ships, uh, where our uh, coverage was sponsored by HII and Leonardo DRS, GE Marine, a GE Aerospace company, and Helicon Chemical. Uh, Nigel, uh, earlier this month, the UK government revealed its new uh, offensive cyber capabilities principles. It's the next step of the national cyber strategy that was disclosed uh, in December. What are these new principles say, and why are they so important? Well, um, I think that you know that this is very significant in terms of acknowledging that the United Kingdom does um, you know, use um, offensive cyber operations um, for uh, specific purposes. Not that many countries have yet uh, acknowledged that that is the case. Uh, the emphasis here is on on. Uh, if you like, you know, the very limited ways uh, in which this would be uh, done, and some of the you know early um, you know the, the introductory remarks in introducing this new strategy um, are firstly that cyber operations will be rarely be used if other responses are better suited to dealing with the challenge. Also, that cyber operations are unlikely to be decisive on their own and need to be integrated into a broader um, um, strategy response. Um, But at the same time, the new um, doctrines acknowledge that um, sometimes intervention in the cyber domain can be the only practical way of disrupting an adversary. And the important thing about the UK approach is that it is designed to be very precisely targeted and to deliver specific effect. If we look at um, other states' use of offensive cyber operations, we often see that they are very broad in in scope, broad brush, and often extend far beyond the um, intended targets. You know, some some recent um, Russian cyber operations fall into that category uh, when you see that you know the the, the, the target is, for example, uh, Ukraine's power grid. Um, but because of the very um, unrestrained nature of of the attack, uh, you you get enormous uh, collateral damage. Not Petya being an obvious case in point. So the UK is very much 
um, you know, aiming to avoid that, that kind of broad brush um, uh, approach with significant collateral damage um, and to be very, very targeted um, and specific. And it's about creating cognitive effects, um, undermining an adversary's confidence in um, their systems, you know, in their data, um, in ways that would be very difficult to do with other approaches. So in, in some ways you could say it's quite modest in its uh, effect, um, in, in its intent, um, but I think it, it, it's a very um, realistic um, approach. Uh, one, I think that to the extent that the public at large are interested in such matters, and in my experience, they tend not to be, this would actually command quite a lot of confidence and also be something that would be relatively easy to defend internationally if it was called into question. So, you know, th th those are the kind of broad outlines. There are some in the United States who've made the case that, yes, we need a declaratory policy on offensive wars. Others maintain that actually a degree of vagueness is mm -hmm. uh, beneficial. From, from your standpoint, um, is it important to have it be declaratory? Do you think that that enhances its deterrent effect? And, and obviously the UK government has said, and, and you've noted mm -hmm. that these uh, cyber means have to also be integrated with military, diplomatic and economic tools. But from your perspective, the declaratory nature of it enhances deterrence then? Potentially, yes. Uh, but I think it also um, enhances public confidence. I mean, in the United States, where um, you know, U.S. Cyber Command um, is engaged in, you know, in, in, a, in a strategy of persistent engagement, um, you know, this um, has been quite controversial in some regards. Some, you know, there, there are those who argue that persistent engagement uh, is simply calculated to antagonize um, adversaries and incentivize them to uh, up their game um, whereas you know the rationale is that um, you know the, these attacks are taking place you know 24 7 all year round and therefore you know persistent engagement is the only way to to uh, to address uh, the challenge um, but I think you know, the, having a declaratory policy does have its utility and maybe it's more um, the case with smaller powers such as the UK, um, it may, maybe it's less of a concern uh, for, for a major uh, power, superpower like uh, the United States. But uh, given that the you know the, the um, but both countries operate within a democratic framework, I think to the extent possible, it does make sense to um, state uh, what your intentions and purposes are. Um, in order to command um, public support, and as I say, to, you know, to, to, to you know, en enable your actions to um, appear defensively internationally um, when you when you need to defend them. You mentioned uh, Russia as being sort of an irresponsible power when it comes mm. to uh, offensive uh, cyber. Uh, obviously, yeah. the Chinese, North Koreans, and Iranians have also been similarly uh, aggressive. 
uh, although we will point out that that um, you know that there are even U.S. Uh, offensive tools that have escaped into the wild, uh, unfortunately, or or have been accused uh, of, of that having happened. Mm-hmm. Do we know enough to know whether or not moves like this are sufficient to deter or change or change the behavior of the very adversaries that we seek to deter? I think that it's going to be a very big ask to change the behavior of major adversaries, such as those that you have um, listed. Um, It's certainly worth trying to do it, but I I simply reiterate the point made in, in um, uh, in, in, in the UK statement that they don't expect um, effects in the cyber domain to deliver results in and of themselves. They do have to be part of uh, a bigger right. package. Um, I think that um, potentially the measures intended might have a deterrent effect, but I don't think we can really know yet. Um, this is a, a new new strategy. We haven't really been able to develop any significant body of case law which would illustrate um, the effect or lack of effect um, intended. So I think it's it's early days uh, to, to to make a judgment about this. Um, but potentially, yes, I think it could um, have a deterrent effect um, on on adversaries if, um, as 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 the strategy sets out, you know, we are able to cause them to lack confidence in their own systems uh, and data. Um, allies have shown, and certainly in the Russia case, even if uh, sanctions are more porous uh, than we would like, allies and partners have come together very uh, effectively. We are seeing that uh, coming out of the G7, where there is a lot of unity on Russia as well as on China. From Mm -hmm. your perspective, what's the right way to structure uh, both offensive and defensive cyber uh, constructs on an alliance-wide basis, because it's great that the UK has it. It's important that the United States or France or any other ally and partner improve their capabilities, but we're as strong as our weakest link. What's a more joined up approach, Nigel, that we need across the alliance, uh, Mm -hmm. given that powers like Russia and China are trying to penetrate, disrupt, disinform, undermine uh, our very democratic governments as, as they seek common cause uh, against the states that would seek, from their perspective, to contain or hold them to account? Well, I think, firstly, if we look at the Ukraine conflict, that has provided some object lessons in the importance of cyber defense and the efficacy of cyber defense if it's well done and layered. Um, and you know that um, outcome for Ukraine, uh, of course, you know, Ukraine is still involved in, in daily uh, contestation in the cyber domain as well as on the actual battlefield. Um, this this was an effect that was produced by collaboration by a number of different con- uh, countries, um, both governments and uh, private sector corporations. And I think the first thing is to have you know agreed processes for um, establishing. Um, for, for sharing threat information and to the extent possible, uh, agreed processes for what constitutes best practice 
in terms of um, cyber defense. I mean, we've always known um, that a lot of cyber defense um, is relatively easy to do if you do it in a serious and systematic way. Um, so, you know, to the extent possible, we, we, we need mechanisms that incentivize uh, states um, you know, to take this problem seriously, to, to access and, and use effectively um, you know, understanding of, you know, threat, um, of specific threats and also um, awareness of, of best practice. And here what we need is flexible mechanisms that um, get the latest threat data out as quickly as possible together with, with um, recommendations on how to deal with them. And that also, of course, involves a degree of integration between governments and the private sector. That, I think, has worked very well um, in relation to Ukraine. We've seen um, companies like Microsoft and Amazon making uh, significant uh, contributions. Um, you know, maybe we need to systematize that a bit more. But uh, my, my sense is if we use Ukraine as a kind of... Uh, benchmark, um, we're not doing too badly in that regard, at least. And we've got uh, about two minutes left, and I've got uh, two questions to ask you, one of sure. which is, does is the line clear enough, right? I mean, there's been a lot of discussion on what constitutes a red line uh, mm -hmm. on a cy offensive cyber operation waged, for example, against the United Kingdom or the United States that would elicit a kinetic response, uh, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, we've, we've talked about cyber Pearl Harbors and what's caused mm -hmm. the spell and yet we've had pretty significant operations conducted against both our great nations and others. Is this line clear enough? Are leaders thinking clearly enough about what those lines are? Um, are you satisfied, even if it's in the secret intelligence services or behind closed doors, that we've envisioned this the right way if we're to deter it? Um, I think this is a difficult problem, and maybe the answer is not to have very specific red lines. I think the, the US approach, um, which is about uh, equivalence of effect is, is probably the most realistic we can come up with. In other words, if a cyber attack delivers um, an impact uh, equivalent in effect to a kinetic attack, that would be you know, a, a, a rationale for you know, a forceful response. I think that is probably um, the, the, the best we can do. And I don't think you know, it's going to help to try and get a whole lot more specific and say, you know, well, an attack on, you know, um, the water supply would be a red line, but an attack on, I don't know, you know, a supermarket food supply chain would not. Uh, I, I think, you know, it's important that, you know, governments uh, have the, the latitude to make judgments about that. And in, in fact, you know, sort of international humanitarian law really does allow for that. So I, I don't think that's, you know, too big a problem. Um, let me ask you one uh, last uh, question. You've uh, devoted your life to the intelligence services, which is about keeping secrets. Uh, mm -hmm. The United States has now had its largest breach in a decade that joins the Chelsea Manning and Eric Snowden disclosures. Um, in a sense, not that much we didn't already know, uh, unlike uh, the other breaches, because mm -hmm. I think the administration and, and NATO uh, governments have been very transparent, uh, both on how the war is going and, and all of these other storylines. But effectively, it's still an embarrassing uh, leak. And we have about a million people in the United States with top yeah. secret or secret compartmented information mm -hmm. access. 
Mike Rogers, the former NSA director and cybercom commander, joined us uh, on yesterday's program and discussed this, that technology can help. From your mm-hmm. standpoints in the secrets business, what can we do technologically on the cyber side of things, big data side of things, AI side of things that can help us prevent breaches like this? Well, well, the first thing I, I would say is that I think we have to get back to um, you know a discipline of compartmentalization. Uh, a million people having access this broad, I don't think makes uh, sense. So um, you know, again, and this is an area where technology can help by making sure that compartmentalization is, you know, is applied um, and respected. It's clear that we can do more to monitor our own systems, to identify the kind of anomalous behavior um, that was clearly uh, critical for for this most recent set of leaks. And I think also we need to think more widely um, about how these sorts of leaks might happen. I mean, very interesting that uh, the most recent leaks were being bandied around on a publicly available uh, website uh, for several weeks before the US government uh, registered that this was indeed the case. Um, and you know, I think that is something that, that clearly um, has to be fixed. But again, it, it, it's in, in these situations, the problem is normally the human factor. Um, you can put all kinds of systems in place and technology can certainly do a great deal to um, improve and monitor the systems that, that you've got. Um, but there is always going to be you know, that, that problem of the human factor, uh, which is very difficult to eliminate completely. Nigel, always a pleasure having you on the program. Thanks so very much for joining us. Uh, already looking forward to having you back on again soon. Thanks so much. Uh, my pleasure. And joining us now for a repeat appearance is John Cofrancesco, the founder of the new artificial intelligence company, Applied AI Company. John, welcome back to the program. It's always great having you on. Well, it's great to be back. Uh, and indeed, congratulations uh, on the new venture. Real quick, uh, tell the audience uh, what you're trying to do that will be different from what everybody else that has the words AI in their title is trying to do. Well, we actually are using AI, so that's a pretty big difference to most of the market, but <laughs> But principally, what we're doing is we're taking technologies that have the ability to really improve the defense of the country, and we're applying them to real-world issues, as opposed to R&D, as as many others are doing. Um, You've uh, spent a lot of time in this uh, business and have always been uh, a thoughtful uh, mind. Uh, Some folks will remember that you were at Fortress Information uh, Security uh, for a while before striking off uh, and starting uh, your own venture. For many people, ChatGPT marks the first time, you know what I mean? It's There's a huge buzz about it. Uh, people are sort of surprised that the near sentient capabilities, and for a large chunk of the people, AI became real with that without realizing that actually almost everything they've been using, you know, Siri is AI, Alexa is AI, and that there's actually enormous amounts of AI that has been uh, running and shaping their lives, everything from weather apps to navigation, uh, and certainly in the analysis of big data. How is this chat GPT technology in particular, though, uh, John, going to change the defense industrial base, uh, which is uh, your thesis? Well, I think what you're looking at is the advent of the ATM machine. So if you if you go back in time uh, to the, the, the 60s, the United States had about 20 to 25 tellers per bank. 
Uh, the ATM machine comes out in 66. And by you know 2016, you only have a couple of tellers in every bank. Here's the thing, that ChatGPT and technologies like it are now going to replace tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of essential, but back end, back office jobs in the defense industrial base. So entire categories of current DOD employees are now useless uh, or will be soon, as soon as ChatGPT is applied to their issues. Uh, purchasers, uh, many in media, almost everybody in strategy are gonna be replaced or enhanced by some form of this technology. Uh, and from a war fighting perspective, do you see a change there or do you think, or does, does it start with uh, the back end? Thanks very much, by the way, for uh, making uh, journalists redundant. Although I will say that for a lot of financial uh, and sports news, uh, a lot of it is automated through artificial intelligence algorithms, right? Because it's, it's a very simple, you know, plug in the right information or it collects the right kind of data and can generate kind of a quick story. Uh, whereas, whereas something a little bit deeper, just like strategy work, when you get a little bit deeper, uh, it, it's, it's, it's different. But how do you think it changes the war fighting side of the equation? Well, you know, if you actually look at it, the Pentagon employs about four individuals for every war fighter. And I think those numbers are going to change dramatically over the next 20 years. It's not going to happen overnight for a number of regulatory reasons, for cultural reasons. But we're going to see a big shift back towards the tip of the spear and away from all the back end that we have today. In terms of the warfighter, we're going to see a big difference between what we, what we do in the Western world and what we see of our adversaries in China and Russia. We in the Western world will deploy these tools to more efficiently operate our bureaucracies. In Russia and China, where they don't have any scruples about using these weapons to actually kill people. Uh, they're going to introduce AI to identify targets, to fire on targets without human interference, to actually make battlefield decisions. Uh, that is a very dark road to go on. I am certain our adversaries will not care about the ethical implications of that. We will be slow to do that for, for obvious moral and ethical reasons. So that is really the biggest change we're going to see from both sides of the coin. Uh, and, and obviously, a lot of very smart people uh, in the Pentagon and elsewhere in academia uh, have been uh, working on uh, the, the moral questions surrounding that, right? I mean, we have committed ourselves to having uh, a human in the loop at, at, at all points, especially when it comes to targeting uh, decisions. I want to get to that uh, in a moment. Uh, in the wake of the introduction of chat uh, GPT, John, um, and, and other applications, uh, lawmakers are beginning to propose uh, legis uh, legislation. Um, the Senate Majority Leader, uh, Senator Chuck Schumer, uh, the Democrat from New York, has, has called for legislation on AI to shine a light on what the algorithm is doing and to uh, illuminate the data set uh, that uh, the algorithm is, is, is using. You know, Tom Siebel of C3AI has joined us on several occasions where he's talked about bias uh, and, and how hard you have to work uh, to make sure you have an unbiased uh, uh, outcome. And indeed, some leading AI minds, including Google CEO Sundar Pichai, Elon Musk, and about a thousand others have written sort of more broadly that it's time to control this technology that has profound implications. From your standpoint, what's the right balance to strike between, um, you know, steering a responsible legislative path and a policy path without actually uh, stunting the development of the technology, which is what, you know, like one side is saying it has to be limited. The other side is saying, oh, you know, no limits at all. What's the right balance here? Well, I'd say the first thing is that any meaningful limitations, whether regulatory or not, the idea is that those things are going to happen are laughable. 
you know, the the code for AI, that this new ChatGPT, not itself, but its competitors, Llama, Alpaca, are now out in the wild. So there is no putting this genie back in the bottle and really limiting it. Again, and I say it's laughable because how are you going to identify all the people who are using these technologies? I mean, even just that ability, find out who's using it, doesn't exist today. And in terms of regulations beyond that, they really fall into two camps. So they're the regulations that are restrictive regulations, very much along ethical or, or moral reasons. And really, we de we're delving into the sci-fi here. Think of Asimov's laws. So we might write laws that say AI cannot be used to harm a human. AI cannot be used to uh, you know, lie to a human. AI cannot be used to do certain actions. So those things will be I think they're important, but they will be near impossible to implement. On the other hand, transparency laws, which is where, for the, for the record, most of our legislators are focused. I think those are great. And I think many of the, our business leaders are also calling for those, but they are similarly difficult to implement. And, and here's why. The technology to measure an AI and, and to understand what it's doing really doesn't exist. It's in a nascent, nascent form. That technology is called a formal method. So it's where you use a mathematical equation or a series of equations to determine what an artificial intelligence algorithm or machine learning algorithm is doing. We, we are actually well behind in that field as opposed to the AI and ML itself. Uh, that's a, we're at a very difficult spot. I am of the opinion that there's very little Washington can do at the moment aside from mandating that we're going to have some transparency around data sets. And again, even that will be very difficult to implement. There isn't a very good way of just describing in words what a data set of hundreds of petabytes looks like. So a lot of difficulty here, um, but it is something we're gonna have to monitor and, and contend with. You know, John, you you discussed sort of all the positive elements of this, right? Um, augmenting human decision making, which is uh, the case now, uh, changing workload and getting sort of rote bureaucratic tasks out of the way, writing better thank you notes more easily. Uh, but it can also be used uh, potentially very dangerously, right? I mean, we've seen even lawsuits where ChatGPT gets the wrong person uh, and identifies them incorrectly. Uh, right. I mean, so there are a whole variety. What are the dangers from your standpoint that we actually have to be cognizant of as opposed to, right? I mean, bias is a big issue. Um, what are the things in your mind that are sort of the biggest dangers uh, from AI in this chat GPT, Llama and other uh, applications that are now coming online? Well, they can be weaponized and they can be used for criminal purposes. For example, you're, you are an a prolific journalist, right? I can get recordings, many thousands of hours of recordings of your voice today, right now. I could take your recordings, I could run it through an AI algorithm, and I can create a machine that's going to sound just like you. Now, I don't know where you bank, but if I have hacked you, I could probably figure that out pretty quickly. And in the same respect that today you call up your, your stockbroker and say, okay, I'm going to confirm this trade. Well, I can now do that with an AI that's going to sound just like you. It's going to come from a phone number that looks just like yours. And it's going to send an email from your email address or one that looks very close to it to your stockbroker to say, move all your money out of your stocks and into my account. That can happen today. That is beginning to happen today. So that's just one discrete example. But those sorts of attacks are going to be now done in mass. Now, we saw in previous elections where AI and ML was used to really barrage social media with false narratives, uh, you know, misinformation, disinformation. That is now going to be brought, you know, 10x, 100x, 1000x because 
these machines are so much more efficient now. I mean, literally within the last three months, they've become so much more efficient at really reflecting language that looks like it was written by a human. You know, it used to be you could spot some of this. I think just in this upcoming election cycle, we will not easily or if at all be able to distinguish what was written by a real person and what wasn't and really what the intent behind uh, some of that content is. You gave a criminal example. Thanks very much for giving them ideas, by the way, John. Can we harness this technology to actually help us better protect ourselves? We heard from uh, Admiral Mike Rogers uh, yesterday on how we have to apply technology to sort of improve uh, security in the wake of, uh, for example, uh, the recent uh, the leak of highly classified documents. How do we use this as a force for good to improve our security? So I have to say, I think there's a lot that can be used as a force for good, but in the battle between using these as you know, forces of evil and forces of good. I think right now that balance really lies on the forces of evil. There's just the negatives with this that you can use it for are so much more powerful because what limits your your uses of good are really ethics, morals, values, right? Whereas if you don't have any of those things, there are actions you can take with these machines that are just completely unfettered. I will say in the long run, what, what I'm suspecting, and we can, we can talk about this in a couple of years, I think, but this is my prediction, that I think the best defense against the weapons that will be created by AI are going to be old school social relations, old school paper media. Because in a digital world where everything can be created instantaneously, you have no way of validating what is or is not a person. How do I know that I'm really talking to Vago? If that's the world, the only way for me to know I'm talking to Vago is for me to sit with you at coffee or a beer at a restaurant. That's how we'll know. And I think we see in other countries that have what we're really considered you know, old school ways of doing things. In Japan, for example, people carry around a stamp that rep- represents their signature. Uh, I think those type of social behaviors uh, may come back into fashion. And I think they, they really are ultimately our best defense. John, always a pleasure having you on the program. Good luck with the new company and look forward to having you back on uh, as a regular AI contributor to our program. Thanks so very much. Thank you so much for having me.